Peace be upon you. God willing, wanted to try something a little different this week. Uh, the other day I was listening to a talk from uh, Professor John Lennox. Uh, professor John Lennox is the professor of mathematics over at Oxford University. And um, he has a lot of uh, discussions, lectures, debates uh, on the topics of science, religion, philosophy. Um, some of the notable debates that he had has been with uh, Peter Singer and uh, Richard Dawkins. And he really brings up some very profound points. Uh, I think we can really uh, learn from it. And uh, while I'm not going to play the entire uh, audio, uh, you can listen to the whole discussion on YouTube. Uh, the name of the talk is Miracles, Is the Belief in the Supernatural Irrational? And uh, it was taking place at Harvard Veritas Forum on March 10, 2012. And without further ado, here is the talk. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to see I'm not like the bishop who turned up at a country church in England. And as he mounted the pulpit, he noticed there were only three elderly people in the audience. And he said to the vicar, he said, uh, did you tell them I was coming? And the vicar said, no, but word seems to have got around. <laughs> Now, I am particularly delighted to be in the University of Harvard because I studied at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, the other Cambridge. <laughs> and in that college, there is a very special room which has been preserved for several hundred years. It was occupied by John Harvard because your great John Harvard came from Emmanuel College. And one of the things that was my joy during my time at Cambridge was to get to know a succession of very distinguished Harvard scholars because there probably still is a system where you can spend a term or a year in Cambridge at Emmanuel and you enjoy his huge suite of rooms and a very extensive entertainment allowance. <laughs> so I'm particularly delighted to be here. I'm interested to see that the motto of your university is the word that stands behind me tonight, veritas, which indicates that the founders were interested in truth. Of course, all of us must start somewhere. And I started in the small country of Northern Ireland. My parents were Christian, but they were not sectarian, and they gave me the greatest gift that a parent can give to his child. They allowed me to think. But when I arrived in Cambridge, in my first week as a student, someone said to me, do you believe in God? And then they said, oh, sorry, I forgot you're Irish. <laughs> All you people believe in God and you fight about it. <laughs> that was a turning point in my life. Because I was interested in truth. Could it be that my faith in God was simply a product of Irish genetics? And so on that day I decided to get to know people that did not share my worldview and befriend them. 
and I have been doing it ever since. I have spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe in the communist time during the Cold War, and more laterally because I speak Russian, spending time in Russia discussing these things in the academies of science. And one of the questions that keeps cropping up is the question that you've invited me to talk about tonight. Miracles is belief in the supernatural irrational. Now there are several concepts here. And the major one, of course, is the word miracle, which comes from the Latin miraculum, something wondered at. Now, of course, I'm aware it has a weaker meaning, like it was a miracle that she passed her exams at Harvard, (laughs) since she never seemed to do any work. You will be mistaken if you think that is the topic I'm going to address this evening. The Oxford English Dictionary describes a miracle as a marvelous event occurring within human experience which cannot have been brought about by human power or by the operation of any natural agency and must therefore be ascribed to the special intervention of the deity or some supernatural being. Now, of course... If there is no such thing as a supernatural being or supernature, there is no need to discuss miracle. And they're not quite the same thing. So the antecedent question that we need to discuss is, first of all, is there a supernature? Or is nature that we observe all that exists? In other words, we have to face the question of the existence of God. Now, if you've been following the British newspapers, as I hope you do every day, of course, (laughs) you will discover that Richard Dawkins is all over the front pages all this week, militantly proclaiming that atheism is essentially the default position. He, as the acknowledged leader of the new atheists, is determined to show that science has rendered belief in all supernatural gods impossible. His book, The God Delusion, is directed explicitly against the concept of the supernatural. And he wishes to use science to abolish religion. Of course, not all atheists are extreme as Dawkins. Jürgen Habermas, a leading German intellectual who's an atheist, regards religion as an important source for creating meaning. And indeed, he warns Europe that our educational system, our legal system, our human rights are all derivative from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And interestingly, he, as a leading intellectual atheist on the continent, adds, to this day we have no other source. Everything else is post-modern chatter. That's a fascinating statement for an intellectual atheist. And I was reminded of that origin of our educational institutions as I looked up at your magnificent philosophy building. It's the only one in the world I've ever seen to bear the inscription, what is man that you are mindful of him? Ladies and gentlemen, students of Harvard, you stand in a tradition that at its inception saw no contradiction between the highest intellectual aspirations and belief in God even in the philosophy department. (laughs) 
I don't know what it's like now. <laughs> but certainly, they did not believe then that belief in God was an insult to the intellect. Now, the new atheists are determined to spread the myth that science and belief in God are incompatible. I say myth because it's very easy to see that that is far too simplistic an analysis. How can science and belief in God be essentially incompatible when, for instance, so many leading scientists at my own University of Oxford believe in God? I can name the heads of several scientific departments, world famous in their fields, nanotechnology, electrical engineering, and so on, who are believers in God. And in this country, just to name one, William Phillips, Nobel Prize winner for physics, is a believer in God. And what I simply observe is this, that brilliant science can be done by atheists, and brilliant science can be done by believers in God, which shows us, ladies and gentlemen, that the conflict which is real lies much deeper in. It is not simplistically between science and belief in God and the supernatural. It is between two worldviews, two concepts of the nature of ultimate reality. And it is against that background that I wish to make my remarks. The one worldview is naturalism or materialism, there's very little difference between them, which believes that this universe is all that exists, or the multiverse. And that is implications for the nature of explanation. It means that explanation, by definition, must be reductionist from the bottom up, because there is no transcendence, there is no ultimate top-down causation. That was the view of Democritus and Leucippus in the ancient world. But also in that Greek uh, melting pot, there were philosophers like Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle, and they did not accept that view. They believed there was transcendence, there was something more. And those two views come barreling up through history and they divide us in this room tonight. And they divide the professors in the academy, both in Oxford and in Cambridge, in England and in Massachusetts. So what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is worldviews, belief systems, each of them. The one is naturalism and the other is theism. And it's just here that we encounter the first confusion when I debated Princeton professor Peter Singer in Australia recently, he started by saying to us that his chief objection to religious belief was that people remained in the faith in which they'd been brought up. And of course, I was a prime example. So just to redress the balance, I asked him publicly about his parents. I said, Peter, were your parents atheists? And he said, yes, they were. <laughs> so I said... Um, you remained in the faith in which you were brought up then. Oh, but he said, it isn't a faith. Oh, I said, I was under the impression you believed it. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, that little spat, and I got on very well with Peter Singer, you can watch the debate online, is very revealing because it's consistent with the attitude of the new atheist to regard religious faith as faith 
and therefore by definition believing where there is no evidence. But atheism isn't a faith. And of course any philosopher could point out to them how trivial that is. It is very important to see that we are dealing with two belief systems. One believes that this universe is the ultimate reality, mass energy. The other believes that God is the ultimate reality. And the burning question is, what evidence is there for the veritas of either of them? The truth of either of them? And in particular, what way does science point And therefore we need to be clear that the kind of faith that the new atheists are describing is what most of us would call blind faith. It's dangerous, of course. But faith, in its ordinary dictionary sense, derives from the word fides. It means trust. And all of us know that we don't usually trust people unless we're gullible, unless there's evidence to do so. We don't trust the banks either unless there's evidence to do so. But that's another story. But the banking crisis has at least taught all of us the difference between evidence-based faith and non-evidence-based faith. I'll come back to the matter of faith later. But having uh, talked briefly about that, I want to address this question quite rapidly. What way does science point? I claim that science points towards God. The atheists claim it points in the opposite direction. And I want to bring as witnesses, first of all, history. It is no accident that when Harvard was founded, belief in God was written into its motto and onto its philosophy building. Because historians of science, like my colleague at Oxford, my former colleague John Hedley Brooke, usually, most of them, will agree with what's called Merton's thesis. And the best formulation of it, I think, is due to C.S. Lewis. He said that men became scientific. Why? Because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. And the great pioneers of science, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, Babbage, and so on, were all believers in God. I can remember I had the opportunity to give the very first lecture on this topic in Novosibirsk in Siberia. Quite a few members of the KGB in front of me. And um, I was invited by the provost. I think that's what you call them over here. I was invited uh, by him to give a lecture on why a mathematician believes in God. It was the very first lecture on that topic in the university in 75 years. And uh, when I started talking about the history of science and the fact that Newton and Galileo were believers, I noticed anger rising in the front row of heavyweight professors. So I stopped, and I said, what's the matter? And they said, why were we never told this? (laughs) And I said, can't you guess? (laughs) They'd never been told. It was totally new to them that the founders of science were believers in God. Now you laugh, but actually we need to think carefully about the implications of that. Because the one thing it demonstrates is that belief in God and supernature were not at the beginning incompatible with uh, science in the slightest degree. It was exactly the opposite. So what has happened? 
Why is it that I'm even having to give a lecture on this topic in Harvard? Why isn't it that we do still believe that there's something more than the natural world? If there is such a deep-seated harmony between science and belief in God. Well, first of all, there is a confusion about the reach of science. Alex Rosenberg, in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, says, the mistake is to think that there is any more to reality than the laws of nature that science discovers. Scientism, in other words, is the reigning view. The idea that science is the only way to truth. Now we're immediately into the realms of epistemology. And Bertrand Russell summarized this viewpoint by saying, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Now Russell was quite a brilliant logician, but his logic failed him badly when he made that statement. What science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Is that a statement of science? No, so that we cannot know it. Is it too late for logic? <laughs> this is what we call a logically incoherent statement. If it's true, it's false. You could work it out afterwards. <laughs> Far more sensible is the view of Nobel Prize winner Sir Peter Medawar, who said it's so easy to see the limits of science. It cannot answer the questions of a child. Where am I coming from? What is the meaning of life? Where am I going to? We need to go outside science. So point number one, major point number one, ladies and gentlemen, is science does not define the limit of rationality. Rationality is bigger than science. Einstein, of course, saw it clearly. He said you can speak of the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot speak of the scientific foundations of ethics. He saw that there was a realm into which science couldn't go. And of course, that's obvious in Harvard, isn't it? I do believe you still have some humanities faculties left, don't you? <laughs> because if science was the only way to truth, you'd have to shut them tomorrow. And I don't think you'd want to do that, and neither would I. This scientism is extremely limited. The second thing is a confusion about the nature of explanation. I'm talking about God, ladies and gentlemen, but I wanted to be very clear to you what I mean by God. Because it seems to me that a great deal of atheist confusion today is that their concept of God is not one that I would share for a moment. Their idea of God is a God of the gaps. Again, in Novosibirsk, I remember I was severely attacked. I tend to be severely attacked. Uh, <laughs> by a professor who said he came up to the blackboard and he drew a stroke of lightning. And he said, this is absurd what we're listening to. You see, the ancients used to believe that the gods were behind this. And then we did a bit of atmospheric physics and we found it wasn't the gods. Exit space for God. And that's the concept of the god of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. Bit more science, a bit less space for God. Now, if you believe in a god like that, it's clear that you've got to make a choice between God and science. Because the science increases by definition, God decreases. But what if you don't believe in a God like that? I certainly don't. My God is not a God of the gaps, he's the God of the whole show. So that when Isaac Newton discovered his law of gravitation, he didn't say, wonderful, I've now got a law, 
and a mathematical description of how it works, I don't need God. He didn't do that. What he did was write the most brilliant book in the history of science, the Principia Mathematica, expressing the hope that it would persuade the thinking person to believe in God. In other words, the more he understood of science, the more he admired the genius of the God who did it that way. The God was not a God of the gaps. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, God is not the same kind of explanation as science is. Stephen Hawking, in a recent book to which I've responded in my little book, God and Stephen Hawking, Say, that was a quick plug, wasn't it, eh? (laughs) Stephen Hawking says we've got to choose between God and gravity. Well, if I were to have a... You know what a Ford Galaxy motor car is, don't you? Or automobile. Um, If I had one of those here and I said, look, I want to offer you two explanations for it. The one is the law of internal combustion and mechanical engineering. A law mechanism explanation. The other is Henry Ford. Please choose. (laughs) Well, you'd say, you're absurd. You need both. Do you? Now, this is extremely important. To realize that explanation comes in different kinds. If you want a complete explanation of the Ford Galaxy, you have to have a law mechanism explanation, the scientific one, and you have to have an agent explanation in terms of Henry Ford. Please notice they don't contradict each other. And the ideas going around, spread virulently by one of the Dawkins memes, the ideas going around that you must have either or. That's nonsense. The existence, and I'm wording this very carefully, the existence of a mechanism that does something is not in itself an argument for the non-existence of an agent who designed it. So that we don't see science. I don't see science. I'm a passionate scientist, if you count pure mathematics as science, but that's another matter. (laughs) Um, I'm a passionate scientist. We don't see a competition going on here at all because God is not a God of the gaps. So the more I study, the more I'm impressed with the genius of God. We must not assume that there's only one level of explanation. Now, to move on a little bit, I mentioned faith. And it has been put about that faith is a a religious concept, and B, it means believing where there's no evidence. Both of those definitions are seriously false. I've argued for the second, now let's come to the first. What about the use of faith in science? It is vastly important, of course. Einstein saw it, and so did Eugene Wigner, who wrote a wonderful paper, much loved of mathematicians, in 1961, entitled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. I mean, how is it that this bright Harvard mathematician, thinking in her mind in here, comes up with equations that describe the universe out there? How does that work? And it led Einstein to say the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Now, we do science with our mind. 
And what I want you to think about now is not the philosophy of science, but the fact that we can do it. Because to me, one of the greatest evidence is that nature is not all that exists, is the fact that we can do science. Now let me try and proceed with the argument. It starts with Darwin and something he wrote. Let me read it to you. With me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind which has been developed from the mind of lower animals are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Now that particular statement is being subjected at the moment to an immense amount of philosophical analysis in the light of the way in which science is going. Because you see, many people hold that the driving force of the natural processes that eventually produced our human cognitive faculties were not primarily concerned with truth at all, but with survival. And we all know what has generally happened and still happens to truth when individuals or commercial enterprises or nations motivated by what Dawkins calls their selfish genes, feel themselves threatened in the struggle for survival. They are essentially obliged to regard thought as some kind of neurophysiological phenomenon. Now, from the evolutionary perspective, the neurophysiology might, of course, well be adaptive. But why, for one moment, would one think that beliefs caused by the neurophysiology should be mostly true? After all, as the chemist Haldane pointed out long ago, if the thoughts in my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, a mechanism that has arisen by mindless, unguided processes, why should I believe anything it tells me, including the fact that it's made of atoms? <laughs> now, this is, to my mind, very important indeed. One of America's leading philosophers, Alvin Plantinga, puts it this way. If Dawkins is right, and we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties, and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own science and his atheism. His biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing to do with God. I find that fascinating. In other words, I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it's not irrational to believe in supernature. It is irrational to believe solely in nature. The boot is entirely on the other foot. Atheistic reductionism undermines the foundations of the very nature of the rationality needed to construct its arguments, or any argument of any kind whatsoever. And I think that the new atheists have signally failed to appreciate the catastrophic implications of their view for science. A very interesting sidelight is thrown uh, on this by Nietzsche. Listen to this. Only if we assume a God, this is Nietzsche, only if we assume a God who is morally our like, can truth and the search for truth be at all something meaningful and promising of success. This God left aside 
The question is permitted whether being deceived is not one of the conditions of life. So, ladies and gentlemen, my basic argument tonight is this. It is a scientific argument in that sense. I believe science makes sense as something we can do. And for that reason, I reject a naturalism that undermines the foundations of the rationality I need to do my science. On the other hand, biblical theism, which I espouse, is completely coherent in its explanation why the universe is rationally intelligible. Because it teaches me that the universe out there and the mind in here are ultimately traceable to the same intelligent God. Naturalism, I submit, is incapable of explaining itself. So that rational explanation has a legitimate claim to universality, but natural explanation does not. And ironically, particularly recent science suggests that naturalism is doomed because it teaches that the universe is a causally closed system by definition. This means, of course, that everything can be explained reductionalistically in terms of physical and chemical processes. But the naturalists who insist on explaining everything in terms of such processes cannot explain their own scientific theories or mathematical equations in terms of mere physical or chemical processes for the simple reason that theories, laws, and equations are not physical. They are immaterial. And the odd irony of all of this is, you and I live in the information age. And we've discovered, and the physicists are telling us, that information is essentially a fundamental quantity that is not reducible to physics and chemistry. So the irony of naturalism is that we're now in an age where we've got to believe in something that's non-material. It is supernatural in the strict meaning of the term. So it's a very interesting intellectual situation to be in, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to suggest that the very existence of rationality is an outpost, so to speak, of the image of God that opens up the conceptual space to seeing that limiting ourselves to a naturalistic explanation is destroying the possibility of all explanation together. And, you know, that question of the immateriality of information is very important. It means we cannot reduce information to physics and chemistry. Let me tell you a little story. We have a marvelous college in Oxford. I'm a fellow of Green Templeton College, and we put on lovely dinners. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the seat arrangements are fixed, so you can't adjust where you're sitting. So this night... I was sitting beside a biochemist, and he asked me what I did, and I was foolish enough to reply. I said, I'm a pure mathematician. Oh, he said, how dreadfully boring. And um, I said, oh, but, but, but I tried to make up for it by being interested in the big questions of life. He said, like what? Well, I said, like the status of the universe. Is it created or not? Oh, dear, he said, it's far worse than I thought. <laughs> He said, listen, the bottom line is this. I'm an atheist. I'm a reductionist. We're going to have an awful evening. We've nothing to talk about. And that's that. <laughs> so what do you do with that? 
Well, I said to him, I said, you know, it's not all that bad, is it? I said, I mean, I'm fascinated by reductionism. I know at least three kinds. Which kind are you? Well, he wasn't quite sure. So, uh, being a kind man, I helped him a little bit, and I said, uh, you're a methodological reductionist. You take a big problem, split it into little problems, solve the little problems, get insight onto the big problem. Yes, he said, I do that. Good, I said. We agree on that then. So he was warming up, called me by my first name, so we were getting on famously. <laughs> and then I said, I think you're an ontological reductionist. That you believe ontos, Greek being, you believe everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry. He said, that's right. That's my basic principle. So I said, let's have an experiment then. He said, what? Here at the table? I said, sure. So I picked up the menu. And he looked at it, and it wasn't very interesting. It said roast chicken, and not even in French, in English. And uh, (laughs) he said, what's the problem? I said, you're a reductionist. Everything in terms of physics and chemistry. I said, now look at this thing here, R, O. I said, those are marks, aren't they? But they're semiotic, Greek semion, a sign. They're marks that carry meaning. He said, that's right. Okay, I said. Explain to me the semiotics of those marks in terms of the physics and chemistry of the paper and ink. And there was a silence. And then his wife said a bit loudly, get out of that if you can. (laughs) But he didn't try. I want to tell you what he said. Now this is one of the world's top biochemists. He said, John, for 40 years I've gone into my laboratory thinking that that could be done but it can't. I was so amazed, I backtracked. I said, oh, but science has only been going 500 years or so. Said, doesn't matter. You cannot explain the semiotics bottom up. You have to introduce an intelligence. And then it dawned on him that I wasn't bright enough to have thought of the argument. He said, where did you get that argument? I said I borrowed it from a Nobel Prize winner. (laughs) And I'm glad you laughed, ladies and gentlemen. It's interesting, isn't it? Just a few marks, and you instantly argue upwards and postulate mind. And we sit and look at the human genome. 3.7, is it, billion letters in exactly the right order in a four-letter chemical alphabet? Sophisticated because the levels of information are contained not only in the linear sequencing but in the folding and in its relationship to the cell and all kinds of things. And we ask about its ultimate origin, chance and necessity. What? Chance and the laws of nature. We don't say that about print. What's the difference? Semiotics in both cases. Seems to me something very interesting is going on. And that semion, the evidence of meaning, our capacity. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, we are not only containers of text, we are producers of text. And that, to my mind, is great evidence that there is a transcendence beyond nature. The beginnings of supernature are already to be seen within you.